On the short list of issues that unites almost every American, opposition to gerrymandering is right up top. This process of drawing contorted maps in your party's own self-interest, its favorability polls around 5%. People rally against it. You can buy anti-gerrymandering board games and jewelry or run foot races tracing the winding borders of districts. And the opposition draws out some colorful spokesmen like former California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. So I say it is time to say hasta la vista to gerrymandering. And it is time to terminate gerrymandering. Thank you very much. Thank you. It may be baked into our country's political DNA, but for Americans, gerrymandering's fun to hate. But there's a risk here. Something that can get lost if we simplify too much. Boil things down to slogans. Because if we really want to fight gerrymandering, we need precision, nuance. We need definitions about what gerrymandering is and what it's not. And that last part, it can get a little tricky. For the News and Observer, this is Monster, a podcast about maps, math, and power in North Carolina a special series from Under the Dome. I'm Tyler Dukes. This week's episode, What Gerrymandering Isn't. How do you measure the will of the people? Say you wanted to start from scratch. Sort of an academic question, granted. But let's think through it. Your challenge is to somehow measure the wants and needs of an often unruly and polarized public in a way that'll actually get things done, fairly. You could put everything to a vote, direct democracy. Greeks tried that, but that could get unwieldy for a country like ours with a population of 331 million, give or take. So maybe you choose people to vote on your behalf, representative democracy. As we choose those folks, one party or another, we imagine that our votes would effectively determine the balance of power. If we're split 50-50, so is the body we elect. Or if we're more 75-25 or 90-10, our leaders would split that way too. That's proportional representation, where the political makeup of an electorate roughly translates the seats. That might sound familiar and fair. But that system is not our system. And the difference isn't always intuitive. Take our U.S. House elections. Forget about how districts are drawn for a minute and just tally up the percentage of the vote, Republican and Democrat, statewide. In 2012, North Carolina split 49-51 in favor of Democrats. In 2014, that figure swung back a bit, with the GOP winning about 56% of the vote. In 2016, it was 53-47 Republican. And in recent elections, the number hovered right around the 50-50 mark. That's about as consistently purple as you can be. The state at a statewide performance level is, I think, fairly representative of a 51-49 kind of split. Well, if you think proportionality should rule, 
then, you know, the, the congressional delegation after the 2022 election should conceivably be 7-7, seven, seven, seven Democrats, seven Republicans. That's Michael Bitzer, professor of political science at Catawba College and author of a whole textbook on redistricting in North Carolina. Here's where things stop getting academic. In a purple state like North Carolina, how do you divide the U.S. House delegation? Gerrymandering opponents will sometimes point to our partisan split, almost even right down the middle, and compare it to the actual results of our U.S. House elections. Since the GOP took control of our state legislature and the map-making process in 2010, between 62 and 77 percent of our House delegation has been Republican. So is this discrepancy, a deep red slate of representatives in a purple state, a sign of gerrymandering? Not exactly. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, you are not required a certain percentage of the seats if you get a certain percentage of the votes. Now, if Congress wanted to make that a stipulation, make that a requirement, they could do so. But in the basic rules of the game, that is not a requirement. That makes democracy in America a little different than, say, Germany. Germans do use proportional representation. And that process played out in the 2021 fall elections. Guten Abend und ganz herzlich willkommen zur Berliner Runde der Parteivorsitzenden. The vote divides Parliament into more than a half dozen political parties. It's a little more chaotic, uncertain. And it forces coalition building to form a political majority, sometimes forging some unexpected alliances. American politics, though, are a little more dependable. Third parties aren't much of a thing. And U.S. House members get elected in a first-past-the-post system, winner-take-all. So you're automatically, by the rules of the game in American politics, you're tilting the winner's advantage because they get 100% and the person who got 48, 49% of the vote gets zero. In effect, every single vote above that 50% mark is wasted, just like every vote cast for the loser. And those wasted votes can add up to skew the numbers far and away from what we'd expect under a system of proportional representation. This might remind you a bit of packing and cracking, those two signatures of gerrymandering. If you're drawing the maps, you can pack your political opponents in as few districts as possible to waste more of their votes, or crack them across multiple districts to dilute their impact, ensuring they consistently lose. One idea circulating among redistricting reformers a few years ago was that measuring those wasted votes might be a way to detect and defeat partisan gerrymandering, objectively. It's a metric called the efficiency gap. One number, a percentage, that would tell you how far a state's district were skewed using each party's wasted votes. Because something important was missing from legal efforts to fight partisan gerrymandering. A standard to judge when it was happening and where it went too far. Racial gerrymandering cases already have a standard, more or less, to detect when minority voting power is diluted. That's why so many lawsuits challenging election maps are argued on racial grounds. In 2017, reformers had an opening to elevate the efficiency gap as a similar standard in a partisan redistricting challenge out of Wisconsin that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And justices grappled with whether it could be this holy grail, a means to curb the worst abuses in partisan mapmaking. But there were problems. 
The formula requires adjustments for uncontested races. It performs oddly in places that are just naturally uncompetitive, deep red or deep blue states. Conservative Justice Samuel Alito was particularly skeptical. Now, is this, is this the time for us to jump into this? Has there been a great body of scholarship that has tested this efficiency gap? It's full of questions. Mr. McGee's own amicus brief. In the end, the high court dismissed the case over a legal technicality, leaving those questions open for another day. Bitzer points out that gerrymandering can make problems in a system with wasted votes much, much worse. It can concentrate and entrench power even further from what we'd expect from pure proportional representation. But so can voters, with individual decisions that lately have started piling up. I am becoming more of an opinion that the fault, dear Brutus, lies with us. More on that after a break. The people of North Carolina have built many thriving cities. Charlotte, the queen city, largest in the state, and center of industry, trade, and transportation. Greensboro's strategic central location makes it an important distribution point. There was a time, not so long ago, that North Carolina was a largely rural state. That's where most of the population lived, spread out across the state's nearly 50,000 square miles that stretch from mountain to ocean. But since the 1990s, our state has been majority urban. In terms of population, cities and their surrounding suburbs rule. It's a trend demographers like Rebecca Tippett have seen continue decade after decade, especially in the latest census, that big count of every resident that actually triggers redistricting every 10 years. So we've seen incredible concentration of the state's population in our urban areas. She runs Carolina Demography, a UNC Chapel Hill research center that studies how the state's population is shifting. Overall, North Carolina added about a million people over the last decade. Despite that growth, in places like Raleigh, the Queen City, and Wilmington, just over half the state's counties lost population. The depth of losses in many of our rural counties, particularly our counties in the Sand Hills and the Northeast, was really significant. We had multiple counties that lost more than a fifth of their population over the decade. That shift has political consequences especially when those concentrated populations all tend to vote one way. It's this argument that GOP leaders like State Senator Paul Newton have used to defend Republican-drawn maps in the past. Newton is co-chair of the Senate committee in charge of redistricting this year. The Democrats tend to own the urban areas, right? They all vote Democrat. They're as blue as blue can be. The Republicans tend to own the rural parts of our state. That's why Roy Cooper can become governor in a statewide vote with only 23 counties of our 100 counties supporting Governor Cooper. But there's a flip side, one that boosts those wasted votes for the U.S. House and legislature. The downside of the Democrats' choice to appeal essentially only to urban voters is that they lose in in districts because, you know, we, we do not have a system that rewards pure popular vote across all, all of the state. And so when the state's broken into districts, like legislative districts, you know, the Republicans get to speak. Republicans aren't the only ones making the argument. 
Political scientists like Michael Bitzer see it too. For the most part, North Carolina voters have pretty much politically sorted themselves into discrete precincts that whether they willingly did it or just by happenstance, these precincts have become more and more polarized, less and less politically competitive. It's not a new trend, and it's not unique to North Carolina. In his 2008 book, The Big Sort, journalist Bill Bishop examined the demographics of an American society that is growing increasingly polarized. He and a colleague looked, among other things, at presidential election data from the mid-1970s on. They were especially interested in the changing number of landslide counties, solid Republican or Democratic areas where the victors won by a margin of 20 points or more. With that methodology, a county where Trump won 70% of the vote would be a landslide, compared to a competitive race where he edged out Biden 55 to 45%. Bishop found that cycle after cycle, fewer voters lived in competitive counties. When you apply their analysis for North Carolina all the way to 2020, you find the same trend. In 1976, 77% of the state's voters lived in competitive counties. By 2020, the number of voters in competitive areas dropped to 28%, the culmination of a nearly 50-year decline. And we're talking statewide election results on the county level. No gerrymandering involved. It's a signal that the movement of people, not district lines, is fundamentally changing our politics. Here's Bishop. Politics used to be about making deals, right? It used to be about dividing stuff and allocating power. But what politics has lost that meaning to a lot of us because we use politics and we use our place as ways to construct our identities. And identity construction has become the primary occupation of modernity. This big sort isn't really a secret. It's a cumulative result of a million different decisions about where we feel we belong. We can see it, feel it, in our neighborhoods. The signs staked in the yard and taped to apartment windows. The flags waving on the porch. Right after the election of Donald Trump in 2016, it was a joke on Saturday Night Live. What if there was a place where the unthinkable didn't happen and life could continue for progressive Americans just as before? Now there is. Welcome to The Bubble. Coming in January 2017, The Bubble is a planned community of like-minded free thinkers and no one else. So what does this have to do with redistricting? For one, it can make gerrymandering harder to recognize. Are the districts really drawn unfairly? Or are we seeing the results of wasted votes and self-sorting? And can we solve one problem without addressing the other? We want a technical fix. And what we also really want is to blame those people. And uh, gerrymandering is is good for both of those uh, needs, human needs, and, and when really the problem is us. So if we can't identify gerrymandering with proportional representation or wasted votes, and political polarization at best complicates the picture, maybe the district's shape can be a signal. Remember compactness? Those methods of measuring the ugliness of a district? Well, sometimes, those looks can be deceiving too. More on that 
after a break. Behold the results of gerrymandering. The famous case of the Chicago Earmuff District. Back in the Earmuff Strip. Here's a, here comes a tractor. He's leaving the 7th. He's in the 4th Congressional District right now. He's going through the 4th Congressional District and... He has entered the 5th Congressional District. There's New York's 28th, affectionately known as the, the Earmuff, Earmuff District. District. Because of the way it's designed. And another place That's that why you hear about... districts are shaped like earmuffs or spaghetti. It looks like the MTV character Beavis from Beavis I and Butthead. the insects splatted on the windshield. Observers say North Carolina's 12th district, straddling Interstate 85, is so narrow you could open your car doors and kill everybody With in a shape it. described by one federal judge as a broken-winged pterodactyl lying prostrate. The upside-down praying mantis. Like a rabbit on a skateboard. It was a dead ringer for Elvis's haircut. In uh, Illinois... When it comes to pattern recognition, humans are pretty much unrivaled. There has been plenty of headway in artificial intelligence, granted, but this is built into our biology, a gift of our evolution. It's what helps us see animals in clouds, heroes in the constellations, and holy figures in burnt toast. Given the number of truly ugly districts spread across this country, that natural talent is good for mocking gerrymanders too. But if we know it when we see it, bug splats and skating rabbits and famous haircuts, can we really call something a gerrymander just because it's ugly? Well, we could, but it might not be as helpful as we think. Consider one of the earmuff districts we just heard about, the one in Chicago where the tractor crossed three political borders in a single street in just a few seconds. That's Illinois' fourth congressional district, and it is indeed ugly and earmuff-shaped. On a map, the district is made up of two pieces connected by a thin thread of highway with a void jammed in the middle. And if you know nothing about Chicago or the people who live there, this would seem pretty bizarre. But on the ground, those two pieces are Hispanic neighborhoods, one Puerto Rican and one Mexican-American. And the space between is a community made up largely of black residents. The district is the end result of a 1991 Republican lawsuit that forced its creation, and it's withstood other legal challenges since then. Nathaniel Persley is a Stanford Law School professor. He served as a court-appointed mapmaking expert in several North Carolina redistricting cases. In a 2012 lecture at Columbia University, he explained why there's more to the earmuff district than its ugly shape. And the Latino district, they said, was justified because if you were to draw a district that went in a circle, like this, then that would violate the Voting Rights Act because African Americans wouldn't be able to elect their candidate choice, maybe. And that it was because each of these groups may have had a claim under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that the drawing of a, uh, a district like this uh, was required and was narrowly tailored to avoid a voting rights violation. On the other side of the country, there was Arizona's second congressional in the early 2000s, a reliably conservative district that covered a chunk of the state's western border with Nevada. But as your eyes track east, the district narrows into a wisp for expanding to swallow a chunk of the state's center. It looks like an island there, connected by the tiniest of bridges. One reporter wrote that it looked like a bird on a spring, extending from a cuckoo clock. That little island of land, the bird on a spring, is the Hopi Reservation, surrounded entirely by a much larger one for the Navajo. It was drawn that way intentionally by Arizona's first independent redistricting commission because the Hopi asked. 
They didn't want to be lumped in with the other tribe. So mapmakers honored that request and kept the district whole by tracing a route through the reservation that followed the bed of the Colorado River. There's no way around it. It's another ugly shape. And you might even concede it's a gerrymander. But if a district is responsive to the community, is it a bad gerrymander? Here's Rebecca Tippett again. Some of that is because there's a trade-off between how do we best represent a community that might be amorphous on the ground and might kind of not follow this idea, our nice ideas of like being a nice, neat shape. And how do we also have a district that is compact and obviously then has to meet some other requirements that we're putting on it? There's another problem with poor compactness as a proxy for gerrymandering we don't want. A problem we can trace back to North Carolina's own recent history. And it cuts the opposite way. If a shape is pretty and compact, is it automatically fair? People for a long time were relying on, is this district kind of like, quote unquote, ugly or not to judge whether it's gerrymandering or not? And I think that what, you know, those 2016, 2017 maps show us is that that's not necessarily relevant. That's Lake Shupek, North Carolina State Director for an activist group called All on the Line. Her group is affiliated with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, an organization headed by former Obama Attorney General Eric Holder. After the state's last redistricting cycle, suits over racial gerrymandering forced state lawmakers to redraw lines for both the U.S. House and the state legislature. And what resulted in the middle of the decade was a set of maps that were prettier, way more compact. Gone was the infamous snake of the 12th Congressional along Interstate 85. The edges were smoother and straighter. Compare the two maps only by shape, and the difference is pretty stark. But their performance wasn't. If you look at, say, the 2011 maps versus maps that we got redrawn in 2016, 2017, those maps look a lot prettier. Um, But the partisan results are actually the same. Holder's group sued the state over both the congressional and legislative maps, arguing they were partisan gerrymanders that violated the state constitution. And those suits prompted yet another redraw in 2019. Courts have noted this in several ways, but the explosion of technology, that redistricting software that allows for precision engineering of maps, has made recognizing gerrymanders more difficult. Ugly shapes aren't good enough. Proportional representation doesn't help either. And we've got to consider how the natural polarization of our state complicates the reality of what's fair. Fair is a four-letter word. Uh, fairness, you know, is in the eye of the beholder. And in politics, it's a game about power. But this isn't the time to throw up our hands. Give up. Concede this is a problem that just can't be solved. Because that explosion of technology, it's two-sided. There's been a Cold War brewing between mapmakers and watchdogs hunting for techniques to answer these questions about what's fair, what normal looks like for a set of districts with a packed and polarized electorate to make clear when it's gerrymandering and when it's not. And that Cold War, well, it's heating up. That's next time on Monster. Monster is reported and written by me, Tyler Dukes, for the News and Observer. It's produced and edited by Clifton Dowell, with editing and production help from Kathy Clabby and Davin Coburn. 
Subscribe to the series and catch up on related redistricting content from the NNO team at newsobserver.com monster. And to continue supporting this kind of local in-depth journalism, visit newsobserver.com slash subscribe and consider a digital subscription.